Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia at 9.30 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope you'll be able to join us, but in the meantime, enjoy this recording of last week's message. Every now and then, whether it's online or in person, I'll run into someone and they will say this phrase that you've probably heard it before. Maybe you've even said it at some point in your life. They say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, right? Spiritual, not religious. And I always wonder, what do people mean when they say that? And what do they have against religion? Like, what happened in their life? What story? Who hurt them? You know, that kind of thing. Like, what's going on there? And why are they kind of leaning in that way? And as a guy who works in the church, obviously I believe in something like religion, right? Like, I believe in, in, in and, I, and I leverage my time, money, and energy towards the church and towards building it up and to help people connect to God. So, like, I'm in on that thing. And so I always wonder, like, man, what do they got going on there that they, that they, would, that they would want to distance themselves from it? Now, if what, when people are saying, um, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious, I think what they typically mean with that is, I don't really like authority, um, or I don't like the church or this organized group. And, and I get that. I mean, if you think that the church is full of like hateful, intolerant bigots, if that's like your impression of the church, then I would understand why you'd want to distance yourself from that and go like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not into that. I mean, if, you, if, that's what you, if that's what you truly believe. And so people just kind of say things like, I don't like organized religion. And I understand what some of the criticisms of the church are. And I understand why you may not like organized religion. I've just said from the stage before, I'm not convinced that the alternative of disorganized religion is actually a better thing, Right? But that's what people say, they get, they get very frustrated with it, and I think what they're saying is part of a larger trend in our culture is, I want spirituality and faith, I want it on my terms, I want to define it, I'm an individual, and that we live in a very individualistic society, and we live in a, in a heavy consumer society, and we're very savvy consumers, so we're tired of being marketed to, and so when you look at, when we survey religion, we kind of survey survey it the way we do with a bunch of other things, and we say, like, I don't want to be marketed to, I don't want to make my choices like that, I can tell when the church is trying to sell me something. I understand that, but I, I think the hyper-individualism of our culture and the hyper-consumerism of our culture is, 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 has a damage, it has a, an effect on the church, but not just the church. That kind of stuff, the, the individualism and the consumerism is, is driving us apart and driving us into isolation all over the place. It's not just within the church. It's like, well, I'm not going to go to church. I can just watch a sermon online. That's what we'll say, and, and we end up doing that alone. I'm not going to go to the movies. I'm going to stay home and watch the movie on Netflix alone. I'm not going to go to the store anymore and, and talk to a shopkeeper or anything like that or the checkout person. I'm going to just order it on Amazon where I can do it alone, and they'll just deliver it to my house. Um, and, and we're just getting more and more uh, separated and fragmented as a society. And it, it concerns me. And it concerns me as someone who raises, who's raising kids in this world. Have you ever seen the movie WALL-E? Pixar. If you're not a Pixar fan, you sh you should be. But but like 
If you've not seen Wally, and I wouldn't even say it's the best Pixar film, but man, the social commentary in that is so good. And there's a, there's sort of this image of the future of the world where humans um, effectively are just rolling around on these like motorized chairs, and they're all like massively overweight because they just sit in these chairs, and then they only uh, their only meals come from these shakes that they drink, and the only way they communicate to each other is through a screen that's in front of their face. They can be literally next to someone, but they will only talk through this screen. Um, and I find that movie to be fun and terrifying and prophetic. I'm just like, whoa, we're becoming Wally, guys. Like, it's happening. We're piling up trash on the earth, and then we're all going to live on these chairs and, and eat our food through straws and talk through screens. Like, it's, it's really weird out there. And I see the trends around me, this trend towards isolation. I see it in my own heart and in my own family. Um, I, I, I could... I could become a hermit. I could, I could bunker in just like anyone else, and I have to fight against that. Sometimes it's just easier to stay home. You've probably felt that way on a Sunday morning. Oh, church, I don't know. It's just easier just to kind of sleep in here. It's raining. I don't know if I want to go out. Um, it's, it's easier to stay home. It's easier to think other people are the problem. It's easier to assume that other people's motives are bad and they're trying to hurt me. Like, I, I get all of that. It's so easy, and I, and I could go there myself. It's so easy to go into a shell, which is, which is why I love the church, which is why I love a community like this, because the church is this place where people come together, and it's, and it's not your biological family. It's more like an extended family. It's not biological. You're not blood with the people in this room necessarily, um, and it is not your workplace, so it's different than work friends, and it's different than your family. It's this, this other place that you come together to, to be a community together, and, and it, you don't work here. I do, but it doesn't always feel like work to be here. To me, it feels like an extended family, and that's a, that's a beautiful thing. I, I love it where we can come together, and we can sing, and we can pray, and we can hug, and we can share, and we can grow, and we can learn, and we can follow this journey of faith together. I think it's a powerful thing where we come together and do that and, and, and ask God to intervene in our lives. And so today I want to talk about really the value of community. And the reason I'm doing this is we've been in this series called Climb, and we're talking about the idea that all of us climb a mountain in life, a mountain of success. We try to get a, a job and a career and a house and spouse and a car and a, and a pet and children and all of those things, and you kind of do the thing that America kind of carves out for you. This is the path you go. Um, and inevitably, we will find out that as you climb that mountain, it's just not all that great. There's, there's, there's some things that are very missing there. And you may call it a midlife crisis or a quarter-life crisis, because I think we're getting to it earlier than we used to. Um, but we, we're starting to figure out, like, this isn't working. This, this thing I'm being sold is just not that great. And at that point, we look around, and, and many times, and people throughout history have discovered there's a different mountain you can climb. There's a mountain of meaning and purpose and connection and, and significance. Um, this is the kind of mountain I want to talk about. And the tools that you need to climb that mountain are different than the tools that you would need to climb the mountain of success. And so along this climb, I'm talking about four different, four different shifts that we can make, four different tools that we can pick up that will help us climb the second mountain. Last week, we talked about faith and the value of faith, why faith matters at all on the journey up the second mountain. And today, I want to talk about the value of, of community and, and why, why it matters. So I want to do that, and to do that, I want to go into the book of Hebrews. We went there last week, and I want to jump back into it here in a moment and, and show you what, what uh, the community looked like for the early church in the first century. Now, full disclosure on this, you all know this, I work for a church. I love the church. 
It doesn't mean I, I, I don't understand or relate to the criticisms of it. So when I talk about the value of the community in the church here, I get that it's not perfect. I've read the articles about how much the church sucks in America. I've read that stuff about how the church is asleep, and, and I've even contrasted the church in America with places like Iran and India and China and other things that are going on. I understand all of that. I get when the church hurts people. I get when people are critical of this church and the frustrations that he's had or leadership and all that. Like, I'm not immune to that stuff. My eyes are wide open on that. I think the church can be incredibly frustrating and disappointing, and maybe that has been your experience too, but I also believe this, when it's functioning well, it can be one of the most beautiful things in the world. And that's where I'm coming from. So that's what I want to talk to you about, this, this community that we have. Um, and, and to do that, let's jump into Hebrews chapter 10. There's a lot of cultural stuff that I'm going to need to give you here as some background, because Hebrews is maybe the most Jewish of all the books in the New Testament, and so it, it pulls on a lot of history and culture that, uh, unless you've spent a whole bunch of time in the Old Testament, um, it, it would probably be unfamiliar to you. So I want to start with Hebrews chapter 10. We'll start with verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. All right, it's super Jewish, and so we need to talk a little bit about the background of that and what was going on, and there's a lot of ancient world stuff. The Jews had a sacrificial system. This is not unusual. A lot of ancient religions had that, and, and in some ways you could argue a lot of religions today still have it. They had a sacrificial system whereby when you sinned, when you committed a sin, you broke one of the laws of God, you had to make an atonement for that sin. You had to offer up a sacrifice for that sin. The way their system was set up is that if you sin, an animal dies. So you sin, and then they're going to slaughter a sheep or a goat or something or a bull, and they're going to take the blood of that, and that blood is going to cover over your sins. You've messed up. Somebody needs to pay for it. You're not going to pay for it. You're not going to be struck down every time you do something wrong, but someone will pay for it, and, and in their system, it was animals. That probably grosses you out. Our modern sensibilities around slaughtering animals and having the blood run like ankle deep through, the, through, a, through an area, like that's real gross to us and it doesn't, and we think sheep are cute and we don't, like, like we, we got all this stuff that we're like, whoa, that's real weird. And it is weird thousands of years later, but in the ancient world, that's how they rolled and it was not, and it was not unusual. So this is what they did and they would have this day of atonement and on the day of atonement, um, a priest would slaughter animals and he would go into the most holy place. Now, there's a temple in Jerusalem. There's a, there's a high, flat rock there called the Temple Mount. It's still there today. And on top of that, now there's a Muslim shrine there. But in, in this day, there was a temple there. A, a, there's this building that the priest would go into to make sacrifices. And in the center of the temple, behind a curtain, there's a place called the most holy place. And this is where God and man meet. This is the place where God dwells on earth. This is the holiest, most sacred spot in, in the whole world, right there where God's presence is among humanity. And you couldn't just walk in past that curtain and meet with God. If you did, you'd be struck down dead. The priest, the high priest, could go into that space once a year. And when he did, he wrapped a, a rope around his ankle in case he messed up and died while he was in there and someone could pull him out. 
It's weird, right? He had bells on his feet so you could hear him walking around, and then if he died, he fell over dead, they would pull him out. So the high priest goes in once a year. The only way he could go in is to take the blood of one of those animals and sprinkle it over the entrance. And so there was the sprinkling of blood, symbolic of this has been cleansed, and now you can come in and meet with God. Now, in that most holy place, the small room that the priest would go, there was the Ark of the Covenant. Has everybody seen Indiana Jones? Are we up to speed on that? That was 1983, guys. We, we, we good? Good. All right. Then you've seen the Ark of the Covenant. You know that if you open that sucker, people's faces melt off. It's terrible. Spoiler alert. Um, no, but, but it's the, God's, God's presence dwells there, and it's a really a, a sacred thing, this little like, box, right? And so they would go in there and sprinkle blood and all that, and that's what the priest would do. And so if you were a Jew growing up, you knew that, hey, to me, for me to be right with God, we need to make these sacrifices, and blood must be spilled. And the Hebrews author, whose audience knows all of that, sends this letter and says, we are followers of Jesus. Guess what Jesus is? Jesus is the high priest, like, you know that high priest that goes in once a year? Jesus is the high priest, and he's done this once and for all. In other words, we don't have to slaughter animals anymore. We don't have to make sacrifices like that anymore. Jesus has made it right, and he has, and he has made an entrance for us to be with God through his blood. He's the Lamb of God. You've maybe heard that phrase. It is Jesus' blood. When he died on the cross, he made it so that we could have direct access to God. That's an unusual thing in the history of the world. Understand this. The idea that you and I could be close to God. Like, we kind of take a very casual approach to God, I think, in our culture. What if God was one of us? And we're like, oh, this is so cool. And like, yeah, God's like my, my homie and, and, and that kind of thing. You just didn't do that in the ancient world. You had this distance and this reverence that I think we've lost to some degree. Um, but we are so used to the idea that there, there can be a close relationship with God. You could pray to God and access him right now. You don't have to go through a shaman or a priest or a holy man or woman or something like that. You don't have to do that. That's what the Hebrews all they're saying and it was radical for them this idea that they could be close to God in this way and that his blood um, made it so that there could be a relationship there I tell you all of that to say because he's going to the author's going to go into um, their their gatherings as a church the community that they formed I tell you all that to say this right here is the basis of the community this is the undercurrent of the church, that church in the, in the first century and our church today at Area 10. This is the, the, the root of the thing. Un, underneath all of this is Jesus died for our sins and we can be made right with God and we can be in a relationship with him. That's important for us to, to understand. That is the, the core of, of this thing is us following Jesus, our high priest, and getting to know him as best as we can and then reaching out to other people and inviting them in so that they can know him as well. That's what the church does. That is, that is the, the root of this thing. Um, and, and you need to know, know that because it is so easy for any church to get off track and make their faith about something else. There are many issues that can grab us and distract us. There are political and so, social uh, arguments and wars in, in culture, right? Culture wars. There's stuff going on where people are fighting over things. Uh, that's all happening. And it's very easy for that to, to come into the church and, and divide people within the church. And it's especially easy for that to happen when we forget what the main thing is. When we say the church is all about social justice. No, it isn't. 
Should we care about social justice? Should we care about people receiving justice? Absolutely. But let's keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is that we would be in a relationship with Christ and we would invite other people to be disciples of Christ also. That is the heart of, of the thing. Um, and, and it's so easy to get off track and get tossed around by political things. There's social and moral and justice issues that some of you probably wish I spoke up about more. And some of you probably wish I would speak up about less. Um, but the reality is I, I, I try to go as the Lord leads me, and the leadership of this church is committed to, to staying focused on the main thing. We're trying to help people know Jesus. Because we all have opinions on all of that stuff, right? And the political opinions. I remember um, the Sunday after the, the 2016 election. You all remember the 2016 elections? That was fun, right? That was good times. Everybody, everybody had a good, yeah, we lost a lot of good people back there. I, I like, you just go, whoa, what happened? This is, and, and I remember the Sunday after that, like I've, I've preached weddings and weddings people are in a good mood, right? You go to a wedding, people want to laugh, they want to party, they want to have a good time. I've preached funerals. You go to funerals, people are sad, you know? It's like, hey, how do you offer hope to people? And so when I go into those environments, I know kind of what I'm getting into. Man, the Sunday after the election in 2016, I remember walking in here thinking I was going to a wedding funeral. I was like, this is weird, because I saw people just melting down online, people in our church who were like, you know, this is a disaster. And then I saw other people who were like, oh, disaster averted. This was so close. It was almost a disaster. And I'm like, what in the world? And it's like, there's a range of people within this church on, on, on all of that kind of stuff. And, and it would be easy to walk in and then start making church about that. And I'm telling you, that's just not what it's about. There's, that stuff's going to come and go. And remember that as 2020 comes, that stuff's going to come and go. Um, the heart of this thing is, is Christ and, and following him and introducing um, other people to him. All right, so that's what the undercurrent of this whole community is. That's what holds us together as a community. Let me tell you a little bit about what the church does. Verse 24, he says this, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, there's actually four things I want to point to you that are, that are in, in these verses here. First of all, it says, let us consider. Let us consider, which means think about it. Think about what we're doing here and why we're doing it. And that's true not just for me as someone who leads in the church, but all of us who show up and who are part of it and who are in a small group and who serve and who are part of the community. Think about what we're doing and why. How, and how do we make it better? How do we improve the community that we're in? How do we make it more loving? How do we, how do we make it more challenging? How do, we, how do we make it more inviting for people? How, how do we do these things? How do we right now make A10 Kids, which is meeting down in 2810 and in Cartwheels and Coffee, how can that be better? What are the things that we could do there to make that, that, that whole program better so that kids can know Jesus? How do we help teenagers on Sunday nights know Jesus? Um, we hired T.J. Owen here this year as a, as a staff member, and, and a big part of his job is working with student ministry because we want to invest there. We're thinking about how do we make this better? How, do, how can we get him to come alongside the, the youth leaders that are there and, and help kids know Jesus as they walk through a difficult time in their lives? Uh, how do we help marriages flourish here and help people love each other better and grow and, and really get into that whole thing um, and do it well? How do we create an environment for single people 
where they can build community and build connection here within the church and in a space that's different from a bar or it's different from home or it's different from work. Like, what can we build here? We need to be constantly considering how we can do this and make things better. Now, the Hebrews author says, let us consider how we can stir one another up, he says. Stir one another up, which is the second thing we need to do, stir. And I put on here, or spur, because a lot of translations will take that same word and say spur one another on. And I like the word spur because it makes me think of cowboys, right? Like, and, what the, and how they get horses going. Cowboys have spurs on the back of their boots, or at least they did. Um, and the reason for that is if you want to get a horse to move, you can, you can press in with those, and they're a little bit sharp, and the, the horse will feel it. And, it. and it's a way of like, hey, let me, let me kick into you to get you moving, right? And I like that image that within the church, we're supposed to stir or spur one another on. There's supposed to be challenge. There's supposed to be some conflict at times, some, hey, let's, let, what about this? And, and hey, this is, I see this thing going on in your life. Let, like, let's, let's do this together and let's do this better. Now, I know this freaks people out because it feels like judgment and judgmental and all the things we don't like about church, but there needs to be a piece within the body of Christ where we are challenging one another and spurring one another on and saying, hey, we can do better than this. Like, let's grow, let's, let's, move, let's move forward. Because if all we do is just say nice things to each other, that's not a church. That's like a, that's like a Hallmark card with a cross on top of it. Like, we need to get into the thing, and, and sometimes that means in the community, in a real community, it means there's challenge, and we spur one another on. Um, and then another piece of this, he says, and let us encourage each other. Um, and specifically, in, the Hebrews author says, encourage each other to, and he said, like, Make sure that you're continuing to meet together. I don't know if there was a, a trend in the first century that people started to like sort of blow off church. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to be a part of that. Yeah, I used to get together with those folks every day. Then we did once a week. Now I'm doing it like once every, once a month or once every quarter or whatever. I don't know. But he was like, no, you need to encourage each other and you need to continue to meet together. And that's a trend that's changed in America. If you ask people 30 years ago, how often do you go to church, faithful church attenders, it would be like three or four times a month and then maybe even midweek or something. Now people who consider themselves faithful church members are once a month, maybe twice. And so things have definitely shifted there. And so he says, encourage each other. I love the word encourage because it, it, it literally means to like pour courage into someone. And I like that. Like, because stuff is scary and we can be afraid. And I need people to come alongside me and pour courage into me. And I think you probably need that too. Someone who will come alongside. Yeah, they're going to spur you at times. They'll, they'll kick in a little bit. But they're also going to encourage you and, 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 and pour courage into you to say like, hey, you, you can do this and we don't need to be afraid because, because of who God is and what he's doing. And then it says encourage each other and finally this last piece towards good works. That means to do the stuff. Like we're not just supposed to get together and talk or say nice things, or be friendly to each other, or love each other. I know those are all good things. We need more civility in our culture, and so if we can practice it in here, that's great. Um, but we're supposed to be doing something. Our love, our community is supposed to take action. If we just want to sit around and talk, we can do that and grow old and die. 
but, but we need to be moving to take action um, and, and serving. That means get up and serve. That means serve in the body here. It means serve in the city. It means reach out and tell other people about God and about what he's doing in your life. There's, there's just a power to that. Um, and so those are kind of the, these four pieces of the, the, the community that is the church. Let me go back to this climb idea because I want to talk to you about why it even matters for, for the climb. Um, as we climb the second mountain, the, one of the biggest differences between the first mountain and the second mountain is that there's this shift away from self and towards attachment, attachment to God and other people. Um, it, it's not about building my own kingdom. It's about building his kingdom and connecting with others. Um, we are so culturally conditioned in America to make our lives all about our lives. And then Jesus comes along and he says things like, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? What does it profit a man to climb that first mountain and then you, you get up there and there's nothing there and you've, and you've gotten far away from God? You've lost your soul. We make our, our lives about our lives and Jesus comes along and says, if anyone wants to follow after me, he has to deny himself take up his cross and come after me. You've got to, that, that it's not about you. Um, I, I think, I, I saw this picture and, and this idea. I think that the, the climb on the second mountain, um, one of the things that, that's key for us is that we need this community. And I sort of liken it to a base camp. I was reading up on Mount Everest. And Mount Everest, as you know, is the tallest mountain in the world. And it's 29,000 feet. There's a base camp before you climb, before you try to summit Mount Everest. There's a base camp, and the base camp sits at 17,500 feet. That's significant because above 18,000 feet, the body gets real wonky, and it, you can't live up at that altitude for very long. So the base camp sits right on the edge of that. And if you're going to climb Mount Everest, you have to get to that base camp before you do that final, whatever, 11,000 feet to climb Mount Everest. And, and, and you do it uh, there at that elevation because the air is going to get very thin and you want to spend some time at the base camp. You're there for quite a while getting your body acclimated to, to the altitude. Um, and, and I found this picture. I, I saw this National Geographic article and they, they were talking about the things that are at the base camp of Mount Everest. So you can see the mountains up in the distance. This is up at 17,500 feet. It's, all, it's basically like, and they construct this every year, it's basically like this tent city, right, of, of people kind of living there and, and hanging out that are ready to make the climb. And there's different things there and I thought this is similar to the church, right, because I'm a minister and we think this way. But I thought there's some similarities there. They have these helipads that are there because um, if you want to climb to this spot, it's about a 10-day climb. And so a lot of times what people do is just fly to this spot and then climb the rest, right, on the way up. Um, so they have these helipads. The point of the helipads is to be able to bring people in. And I think, oh, that's a cool idea about the church. We are this community, this, this tent gathering, these people coming together around a common cause, uh, sitting on the edge of, of the thin air or on the edge of, of the world or whatever. And, and we, and we want to have entry points. We want to have spaces where people can come in and be a part of this. This is why we do a, a climb event like we're going to do this afternoon, or this is why we do different things out in the communities, why we do summer fun. We're looking for, it's like a helipad. We're looking for the place where people can come and bring friends and, and new people can be injected into the community. They also have an ER tent 
Um, the, the ER tent uh, is, is there because um, the job is hazardous. And if you're going to climb, altitude sickness is a real thing, and there's injuries and all that. And so there's an ER tent. It's there so that when people get sick, they can get healed. Um, in the church, the church can function like that. It can be a hospital for healing. It can be a place where people uh, get some things right in their relationship with God and with others, where, where they can recover from addictions, where they can be free of some things. There's, there's healing that goes on in the church. They also have a tent up there that they call the big dome, and I actually have a picture of the inside of it. Um, it so uh, I wish I I wish I'd shown you. So this is the tent they have, the, the big dome tent. Um, I wish I could show you the outside because um, the, this picture makes it look like it's massive on the inside, um, in in a Harry Potter sort of way. But when you see the outside of it, you're like, it's not that big. Uh, but but this, this, the point of this tent is for people to kind of reflect and they have this beautiful view and it's like this, supposed to be this meeting place. And the Everest Trail Guides meet here and they instruct people and help people on, on the climb. Um, and I thought, okay, that's for church, that's Sunday morning. That is experience the, the majesty of God, see him, worship him, see what he has done, and let's get together. We'll have trail guides, we'll have people, we're going to come together and talk about how we're going to take the journey. It's the, the big dome tent. I thought it was a kind of a cool idea. And then they also have um, a, a place, uh, go back to the original picture there of the, of the group, there's, there's a place over there on the right, you see it's called Everest Link, um, and it's basically the Wi-Fi tent. Um, they have that there too. Uh, it, is, it is the Wi-Fi tent, and it is designed so that if you want to blog or email and talk to friends or whatever, it is a connection space. And I thought in the church, that's small groups. We get together, connect, not just digitally, but in the real world. We connect with one another so we can be close. Um, and and, and that's, that's what we do as a community living on the edge of, of something greater, a, a smaller community within Richmond City, within Virginia, within America, within the world. Um, the, the, that's that's kind of what we are. And, I, and my conviction is that in America, we are doing fine with digital connection, but we're lacking real people connection. And I remember when Facebook became a thing, the idea was, well, this isn't my space. This is going to be the actual you. My space was like, you, you pretend to be something online. This is going to be actual you connecting with other people. And there's some of that for sure. But it's also... Uh, maybe another factor that's driven us towards a bit of isolation. And, and we have digital connection, but not actual real connection. And, and, and something is broken in our culture about that. And actually, something's been broken in our culture for a very long time. In, in many ways, our culture was founded with that brokenness built in. Um, David Brooks writes about it in his book, The Second Mountain. He, he, he quotes Sebastian Younger, who, who wrote the book Tribe. And he talks about the colonials and the Native American tribes that were living unhappily side by side in the 18th century. And what they were discovering, the, the, the European settlers that were in America, that what they were discovering is that the, the Native American tribes were not all that thrilled with their culture. And the Europeans believed, hey, our culture is vastly superior to the Native American tribes, and so we'll live side by side with them, but occasionally what we're going to do is we're going to invite some of the Native American folks to come live amongst us, and we're going to teach them language, we're going to educate them, we're going to give them school, better clothing, whatever, and what's going to happen is they're going to love it so much that we're, we're, they're going to be civilized, and they're going to become like us, and it's going to be a, a beautiful thing. And here's what they found out. That just wasn't happening. Like they would bring people in from Native American tribes and they would, they would be civilized and they would learn European way of school and all that. And then given the, the first opportunity they got, they left and they went back to their tribe. 
Um, and in fact, the opposite was happening. Uh, they, were, they were finding European settlers choosing to go live among the Native American tribes. When there were wars in between, sometimes the Native American tribes would capture some Europeans and bring them into their camp. And then, later on, a European army would come and, and liberate that camp of prisoners, and the prisoners would go run into the woods so as to not be captured by their liberators because they would rather stay with the Native American tribes. What is going on with that? The Europeans were trying to figure this out. Why are they doing this? Here's what they discovered. The Native American tribes had a strong sense of community. They had communal spirit, communal life, and they, had, they, they just put value on these things. The Europeans were very individualistic, and they didn't have those strong ties, and therefore they were very separable. You could, you could kind of pick them off one by one. Um, and there, there was something going on there that, 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 that the Europeans never really uh, figured out. Um, and, 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 and many of them went and chose to go live with the Native American tribes. Um, I, I think, I don't know about you, but I think the European way of thinking won the day in America and, and became the default of how we see the world. Um, and I think there's something broken there. And I think a lot of us don't feel like we have a choice anymore. That, that the way that it is, is just well, it's just the way it's going to be. And I wish we had the choice to lean more into community over leaning into self. Um, but, but a lot of times it feels like we don't. And it feels like leaning into community is scary because people around us are scary. They did a survey in the 1960s. They asked Americans, um, what do, you, do you think your neighbors are generally good people? And 60, 65% of Americans thought, yeah, my neighbors are generally good people. They do that survey now, and it's 32%. 32% of us believe that our neighbors are actually decent people. And the truth is, the people really haven't changed that much. They're not any worse than they were before. We just think they are because we have been driven into these pockets of isolation and fear. And so if we're going to climb, if we're going to grow, if we're going to move away from self and towards God and others, we're going to need a community around us. So join a small group. Be part of that. Get in, get in the community that, that, that we offer here. Take, take a risk and sign up and do that and show up and lean in, reach out, make your voice heard. And let's climb together. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. I pray that we, uh, we take the risks to reach out and get to know the community, to not just show up in a dark theater, but to get to know others in the light, to, um, to consider, to encourage, to spur uh, to do good works together as a community. God, help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.